The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your guest host today, Linda House, President of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide, online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org and by telephone helpline at 1-888-793-9355. Many times we hear about different breakthroughs in cancer and cancer research in the news. When we hear about these different stories, we might hear the word genetics or genomics interchangeably. While these two things are very similar and absolutely related to one another, they're also very different. And the more we learn about cancer, the more important it is to be able to understand what each of those uh, are. In previous radio shows, we've discussed the connection between genetics and cancer and the role genetics plays in a person's risk for being diagnosed with cancer and or being re-diagnosed with cancer. In today's show, we're taking it a step further to learn more about the role genomics plays in cancer diagnostics, from how it impacts your diagnosis to how it impacts decision-making and everything in between. So joining us today to learn about this fascinating and yet complex topic are Dr. Ruth Oritz and Jan Farron. Ruth Oritz is a clinical professor of medicine at New York University's School of Medicine, and she specializes in treating women with breast cancer and other malignancies, as well as women who are at high risk for cancer. Dr. Oritz is the founder of the former Women's Oncology and Wellness Practice in New York City. She currently practices at the New York University Perlmutter Cancer Center, where she is committed to helping women with cancer continue to live full and active lives using flexible treatment programs that addresses women's concerns about career, family, life, relationships, and sexuality. Thank you for being here during your very busy schedule, Dr. Oritz. My pleasure. Also with us today is Jan Farron. Jan is a breast cancer survivor whose personal credo has always been, be your own advocate. This motto saw her through years to her current position as senior managing director at a wealth management company, and it was what fueled her strength and resolve when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, eight years after her diagnosis, she continues to pursue her love of traveling, recently returning from a trip to Mount Everest and spending time with your family, including two granddaughters. And and Jan, thank you so much. We're happy to have you here with us. It's my pleasure as well. Thank you. Dr. Oritz, I'm going to start with you, and we're going to go through some very basics to really help uh, level set everyone on what we're talking about today. Can you just start by talking about what is a genetic marker? 
Well, um, I think I have to back up and make sure I understand your question because when we talk about genetics, you know, are we talking about the genes that we've inherited from our parents or are we talking about the genetic markers on the tumor cells? And I think what we're focusing on today are the genetic markers on the tumor cells, right? You know, I, I, w- I would love for you to explain to our listeners the difference, the difference between the two of those, right? right. That those, those both exist and what each of those are. Okay. So we all have genes, and we have a copy of each of our genes, one from our mother and one from our father, and we're born with those. And every single cell in our body has identical sets of those genes, and those genes determine everything about how our bodies function and also about how we appear. Do we have brown hair or blue eyes? Are we short? Are we tall? And also, these genes can determine how our bodies function internally. Are we people who are born with predisposition, let's say, to diabetes? Are there genes that could be markers for specific inheritable diseases like sickle cell anemia, which is an inborn error in the way that the hemoglobin molecule is produced in red blood cells. So we know that there are some diseases that can be inherited based on mutations or abnormalities in genes. And we know that there are also some genes that can be inherited from our parents that don't necessarily cause disease, but that may increase our risk of getting a specific disease. We know that with respect to breast cancer, there are a number of genes that have already been identified that can infer a high risk for breast cancer, and those are called breast cancer 1 and 2 genes, BRCA1 and 2. Many, many other genes have now been identified in which there's an association between an abnormal form of that gene and the development of breast or other malignancies. So those are the genes that we inherit from our parents. We're born with them, and they stay in our bodies forever. Then there's another kind of genetic marker for disease. And when we're talking about malignancy or cancer, we're thinking about the DNA, not so much that we inherit from our parents, but that's in the cancer cell. Well, I just told you that all the cells in our body have the same DNA. So what happens here with the cancer cell? Well, cancer cells are different than normal cells in the body. So for a malignancy to develop, a normal cell has to somehow be damaged. And we think that actually more than one injury has to occur if injury in a, in a metaphorical sense, um, to make that normal cell transform into a malignant cell. One of those steps in the transformation to malignancy could be that there is a susceptibility from an inherited gene. That's how the BRCA genes work, the BRCA genes. Mm-hmm. But then in addition, there may be other abnormalities that begin to accumulate within that cell, making it turn from a normal one into a malignant one. And we call those markers on the malignant cells 
we also refer to those as genetic, and perhaps more recently we've been using the terminology genomic to differentiate the genes we inherit, the genetics we get from our parents, from the genetics of the tumor cell per se, where we start off with that same DNA that we inherited, but then it changes over time for various reasons in the malignant cell. Mm-hmm. I hope that was clear. Yes. So I just, I, I just want to, to paraphrase. So when we are talking about genes that we inherit from our parents, and I think you gave a very, a very um, well-known example, the BRCA1 and 2, we, we still sort of refer to those as genetics. Yet right. if we're talking about testing actual tumor cells, so people that already have a cancer and looking at their cancer, that's when we flip over into looking at the terminology of genomic. Right. Great. Thank you. And so, so talk to us um, a little bit about genomic testing, you know, because this is something that is relatively new, at least it's relatively new sort of in the modern awareness, right? It may not be yes. relatively new in medicine, but it's in modern awareness, it sort of is relatively new. So talk to us about genomic testing and what does that really offer to you as a clinician and, and also to the options that you can offer to your patients? Yeah, it's actually been a revolution in oncology and in the way we think about cancer and the way we treat cancer. So um, recently, we've been really focusing in our research, and when I say recently, I mean in the last 10 or 20 years, in trying to understand just what I was saying before, the process by which a normal cell turns into a malignant cell. And if we can understand those molecular processes you know, in a deeper level, then we're hoping that we can be able to develop treatments that target where things went wrong to make that cancer cell behave abnormally and either reverse that or undo it or get around it so that we can kill the cancer cells or reverse the problem and allow people to be healthy and not be sick from cancer. So this is really a revolution in the whole way that we're thinking about malignancy. Um, Genomic testing has come a long way since we started doing it, but I think we're still, I wouldn't say in infancy, because we've made a lot of progress, but we're still in the childhood years of genomic testing. In breast cancer in particular, we've made a lot of inroads um, in trying to understand more about the molecular biology of that breast cancer cell so that we can go beyond the standard treatments that were available to us 20 years ago. Um, I can go, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into with each question, or do you want to... No, I think, go ahead and, and, and continue this okay. thought. I think it's, yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Right, so, and, and, yeah. yeah, so thank you. let's take, for example, the type of breast cancer that we know to be most common, which are breast cancers that express receptors for the hormone estrogen. Mm-hmm. And we call these ER, or estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Mm-hmm. This is the most common type of breast cancer and is seen in women who are both pre- and post-menopausal. And we know that when there are disturbances, let's say, in the way that estrogen binds to the receptors on these cells, that it can cause the cells to grow abnormally, 
to proliferate abnormally and to lose the checks and balances on the way that the cells grow and differentiate, and that's what causes malignancy. So many breast cancers are fed, if you will, by estrogen binding to this estrogen receptor. So we know that if we target our treatment to this pathway by using medicines that either interfere with the ability of estrogen to bind the receptor, drugs like tamoxifen, Mm -hmm. or if we can decrease the amount of estrogen that the body is producing, medicines like the aromatase inhibitors, that we get a good benefit in treating estrogen-positive breast cancer. Mm -hmm. We also did some clinical trials kind of early on that showed even when the estrogen receptor was present and we gave these treatments to patients, that some of them with early-stage breast cancer still developed recurrences, meaning the breast cancer came back even though we gave them this treatment at the time of diagnosis. So early on, we started to think, well, maybe we should be giving chemotherapy to these women in addition to the hormonal therapy, the anti-estrogen therapy, and see if that prevents the cancer from spreading or coming back. And sure enough, when we did randomized clinical trials, we found that if we added chemotherapy into the mix, we were able to prevent recurrences in some, but not all, but in some of the patients receiving hormonal therapy who might otherwise have had a recurrence. So based on that, Our guidelines for treatment changed, and this goes back to probably somewhere in the late 80s, 1990s, where we thought, well, maybe everyone who has breast cancer needs to get both hormonal therapy, the anti-estrogen treatments, and chemotherapy. So we started giving chemotherapy to a lot of women who had early-stage breast cancer. Mm Mm-hmm. But then we started to question that and said, well, you know, if this chemotherapy is only helping some but not all of the women, how do we know who are the people who are going to benefit? Because right now we're going to have to give chemo to everybody, even if it's only benefiting 3 or 4 or 5% of those patients. So that means out of 100 women, if we're treating everybody, maybe 95 of them didn't need to get the chemo. And... Chemotherapy is difficult treatment. It has a lot of side effects. There are short-term and long-term complications, toxicities. We don't want to give people medicines they don't need, but we want to make sure that the people who need them get them. And that's where genomic testing really came to the forefront in the breast cancer story because some very smart scientists started to say, well, maybe we can figure out who are the women, who, what is the subset of women with estrogen-positive, estrogen-receptor-positive breast cancer who really need this chemotherapy, who are really going to benefit from it? And can we differentiate them from the women who are going to do just fine on the hormonal therapy alone, who don't also need the chemotherapy? And that was where genomic testing was born in breast cancer, and that's where it has its biggest role right now is in helping us differentiate who are the individuals who should think about getting chemotherapy in addition to hormonal therapy for early-stage breast cancer. Hmm. That's fantastic. I mean, just the idea, you know, just to sort of paraphrase, again, what you're saying for, for, for our listeners is, 
you know, the differentiation between genetics, genomics, genomics is really applied when someone already has a cancer to help you as a physician learn more about the, the properties, if you will, of that type of cancer and also marry that with the particular, you know, needs of a, of a patient so that you can decide who would benefit most from which type of treatment or exactly, treatment at all. Because, because prior to this, Everybody was getting treated with kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm-hmm. We said, gee, you know, if our studies show that chemo is helping, then we have to give it to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's, we were over-treating a lot of patients. And maybe there were some people not getting it who really did need it mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So to be able to tailor the therapy to a specific individual and base that on what's going on on a molecular level in the tumor cells that were from that patient's specific cancer, I mean, that's like major. That's a, mm-hmm. That was a huge revolution for us. Mm-hmm. So it personalizes what? the treatment. It takes it out of that one-size-fits-all general realm into what's right for this individual patient. Mm-hmm. So can you just speak to what other cancer types this might be um, being investigated in? Yes. I mean, there, we were looking at this now in many other cancer types. Um, Malignant melanoma is an example where um, we've now been able to identify specific mutations, that is abnormalities in the DNA of the tumor cells, which um, we haven't been able to do until recently, to find that, yes, there are some patients who have this particular genomic abnormality in the cancer cell, and if we give treatments that target that, those patients can do you know, really very well and much, much better than other treatments available in the past. In certain types of lung cancer, we know that if we find a specific genomic um, mutation or abnormality, again, that some of the new targeted therapies, not chemotherapy, not radiation, can be very effective in controlling disease, sometimes for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the question we hear a lot about immuno-oncology and so when you think about using this genomic testing to better understand whether somebody would respond to the new immuno-oncology drugs, because I hear you say melanoma and lung cancer, right, right. Is, is there utility there or is it still oh, too new? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, in, in lung cancer, there are many patients now who are receiving a medicine called Tresiva, which um, is, only works if, there is a, if it's targeting a specific genomic abnormality in that particular lung cancer with the melanoma cells, we're looking for BRAF mutations for some of those immunotherapies. So we have a a pretty good sense in some of these types of malignancies about what kind of um, treatment to use, including these immunotherapies. In some of the lymphomas, we can use a medicine called rituxan, rituximab, which has also really changed the landscape for lymphoma treatment. How long does it take to get the results of these tests back? So if you're a patient that's diagnosed with cancer and you're sort of eager to to get on with therapy, how long do patients have to wait? Yeah, well, you know, it really depends on the type of cancer and the type of analysis that we're doing. In breast cancer, there are a number of assays that are commercially available. The one we have the most clinical experience with that's been around the longest and that we've used uh, most extensively in, in treating patients is the Oncotype DX assay. This has been commercially available now oh, I would say for more than a decade, um, 
the turnaround time there, you know, I usually tell patients the outside is two weeks. We sometimes get the results back more quickly than that. So as soon as we can get that tissue from our pathology laboratory to the specialty lab that's doing the testing, the turnaround time is, you know, pretty quick. Um, Let me just say that this is testing that's done on the tumor, not Mm -hmm. on the patient. So -hmm. the patient doesn't have to go through any additional procedures or surgeries or anything like that. We take the cancer cells from the tumor that already has been removed surgically, either in a biopsy or during a surgical procedure, and then we can look at a very small number of cells, actually, to do this kind of genomic sequencing. Um, depending on the type of sequencing you're doing and the type of equipment that's needed in the laboratory, the turnaround time is anywhere from two weeks to really sometimes six weeks. Um, there are some analyses that we're doing mostly for research purposes right now where we're looking at many, many, many genes, up to 40 or 50 or 60 different geno- gen- uh, pathways in the cell, and that sometimes can take a few weeks to get that back, three, four weeks. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, we're talking about a matter of weeks, not months, but mm-hmm. it's certainly not two or three days, you know. Mm-hmm. So there is, there is some time involved in this. These assays are a little bit complicated to run. They have to be done by experts in laboratories who are validated and approved for running these tests and where they have good reproducibility and, um, and reliability. Right, and, and I sometimes have patients who will who will call because I think really one of the hardest things for patients to do and one of the hardest times is in this period of, of, of waiting. But given what you've said about making sure to put, put the right treatment alongside the right patient and then also potentially remove unwanted side effects, you know, by identifying if a treatment wouldn't work for a patient, it seems to me that it's really important that we, that we wait this period of time to make sure that, that patients get the right treatment. Absolutely, positively. And, you know, in the scheme of things, although every moment for a newly diagnosed cancer patient is, you know, is difficult and the waiting is, oh, I go through this every day with my patients, the waiting mm-hmm. is really tough. But once people understand how important it is to have treatment that's appropriate, that's targeted, that, that's the right treatment for them, they understand that waiting for that information is okay. And we also know that, let's say, in breast cancer, where the decision about whether or not to give chemotherapy is at stake, um, we have time. We don't have to start that treatment within the first week or two of diagnosis. We have four to six weeks after surgery before initiating that. And, and depending on the kind of surgery a patient had, she may not even be recuperated fully from her operation. So we certainly want people to be fully recuperated from surgery and well-healed and up and about before we begin chemotherapy if that's what they need. And if it turns out that they don't need chemotherapy, then having waited an extra week or 10 days or two weeks certainly isn't changing the outcome and makes no difference at all if they're, they're waiting an extra week to start their medication. So it's totally safe. Great. Thank you for that clarification. So we have just about two minutes until we go to a break. And I know that we're going to, to lose you. So we appreciate you spending this, this time with us. Um, can you just give us a sense of, is this type of testing 
automatically applied to all patients in all settings, so patients <laughs> that are in the community, academic. So is it, is it a standard of care, or are we still getting to that point where it's a standard of care? Well, I think in breast cancer, we really do consider it a standard of care. And if you look even at the national guidelines that come out of organizations like the national, you know, NCCN guidelines for um, national standards of breast cancer treatment, they really do recommend that we do this genomic testing on all patients who have early stage estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Now, there, you know, might be some oncologists here and there who quite haven't gotten up to speed, but I think by and large, around the country, most, you know, we're really doing this. Um, at the beginning, there was a little bit of reluctance on the part of some people to take it up as a standard of practice, but now with the huge accumulation of data that we have on how useful these tests are, we are seeing this on a more widespread basis. Um, certainly starting at the academic centers and then branching out to other practices, but uh, there's no doubt that in breast cancer and in many of the other tumor types, this kind of testing is standard. And then one more quick question, and we're going to go to break. Is this type of testing covered by insurance? Yes. Yes. That was, a quick, that was an easy answer. <laughs> so <laughs> that if, was um, you know, if it's the type of cancer where the testing has been validated to really make a difference for us, then yes, the insurance does cover it, and we really have not gotten into problems with that. Great. Thank you so much for spending this very generous time with us. I know that we're going to lose you, so thank you, well, Dr. Well, so far Ritz, I'm for... here. I'll, if something comes up, I'll, I'll hop off, but I'm here for okay. the moment. Okay, great, great. So this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and this episode is sponsored by Genomic Health. We are going to take a quick break, but we will return and hear from Jan Farron with the, uh, the patient experience right after this short break. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by Genomic Health, and we have been really fortunate to have with us two remarkable guests, Dr. Ruth Oritz, who is a practicing oncologist, just spent a lot of time with us, helping us really understand the difference between genetics and genomics. And now we're going to hear from Jan Farron, who, as I introduced in the first segment, is a survivor and also has been operating under a motto of be your own advocate. And so, Jan, I would love for you to build on what we have heard from Dr. Oritz um, early in this segment about genetic and genomic testing. So you have had both. Help our listeners understand um, that experience. Oh, I would be happy to, and I was really um, very delighted to hear the doctor's comments. You know, I would say that as the person on the receiving end of the type of care that that this doctor and many others um, provide for patients like me, and also as she was referring to the revolution in thinking about how we treat cancer for, uh, in all types of ways, but particularly on our topic today with the genomic testing is quite remarkable, and it's it's just uh, it's it's a marvelous thing for patients to have to add to their many things that they're thinking about as they, along with their doctors, make treatment decisions. You know, she was talking about uh, the the genes that we inherited. I inherited very healthy genes. No one in my family has ever had cancer, and uh, it never really occurred to me that I would ever have cancer. So it's not anything I worried about or was concerned about. And um, when I was diagnosed, frankly, I was quite surprised. So um, it's just the kind of thing that uh, you don't necessarily expect. Other people, and I have friends and my daughter has friends that unfortunately have had propensities, as I think was the term the doctor used, uh, for breast cancer and other types of cancer. So they live with a bit of a fear um, throughout their life, especially as they start getting older or getting closer to menopause, that um, I didn't ever have to even think about. So hmm. that was my experience in terms of genes versus markers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which then I became very familiar with. So, so talk. So, talk, tell us about that. So, how did you become more knowledgeable and you know more aware of genomic testing? Well, so what happened for me is I was just you know running along, living my very busy life, traveling and doing all the things we love to do, enjoying our families. And I found what I would refer to as a very minor abnormality on 
one of my breasts. I mean, it didn't feel like a tumor. It was very subtle. I mean, I thought it was perhaps a little scar tissue or something. So I ignored it for about a week or two. But when it didn't go away, I thought, well, I'll just move up my mammogram. So I live um, in San Francisco, California. We have an amazing medical um, capabilities here. And so I was going to a clinic that is pretty well known for all the good work that they do and getting regular mammograms and had been for 20 years. And so um, I went in, I had my mammogram and they smiled and said, everything looks clear. Um, See you next year. And I said, you know, I'm glad to hear that news, but I'd like to know what this, this thing is. And again, very subtle. And so um, I pushed a little bit, and I guess that's why you mentioned my my motto is be your own advocate. Mm -hmm. We all like to hear good news, right? But sometimes we know that it's not necessarily bad news. And believe me, the last thing I was thinking about even then was breast cancer. But I knew that what I had, I hadn't had before, right? So all I wanted was a plausible explanation for what this was. So they did a second test, which was a, a, I think it was a sonogram of sorts. This was over eight years ago and still said, no, it looks clear. We're not finding anything. So I I was really sort of frustrated because I thought, well, it must be something. So I said, what's the next um, test? And they said that it was um, a needle biopsy. Mm-hmm. Although the doctor indicated that he wasn't even sure where he was going to put the needle. So <laughs> I directed him and suggested that I have the test just to be sure, because if I'm going to walk away for another 12 months, I don't want to be thinking about this every day for the next 12 months. So they did a needle biopsy. I came back in a week for the results. And the interesting thing was that this is a very reputable clinic with very friendly people and just what you would want to experience. And when I came back, no one looked at me. They greeted me when I walked in, and then I sat down in a chair, and when people walked by, they all put their heads down. And this is such a very interesting thing about how people deal with any bad news in their life. And I turned to a good friend that I was with, and I said, you know what, I have breast cancer. And he said, oh, don't be ridiculous. And I said, look at how everyone is is ignoring me. Mm-hmm. So I went in, and I had the... Uh, the the doctor came in and and they had a social worker in there. I don't know if they thought I was going to faint or what, but they the doctor came in and he said, I, I just don't even know what to tell you. I'm just stunned. Um, you found it. We didn't. Um, and we would have let you go another year. So anyway, to sort of cut to the quick, I, um, oh, and they told me, well, you know, now you're going to meet with, Uh, an oncologist and you're going to meet with a surgeon and just exactly what the doctor mentioned that there was this this kind of one-size-fits-all treatment and you'll have you know six weeks of radiation and then depending on how that all looks you're probably going to have chemotherapy as well so I um, started doing a little bit of research on my own and I also told them that it was going to take a week for me to meet to the, with the doctors that they recommended. But I also decided to go to a completely different um, medical facility, which ended up being a teaching facility, which I would highly recommend, and met with people there. 
and they were already in clinical trials for interoperative radiation therapy, which made a huge difference. And they were also looking at things that had not up to that point been offered to me. So I made the decision then to have um, a lumpectomy, and my doctor recommended Oncotype DX. And I said that I didn't know what that was, so I went online and did my own research, although she did tell me more about it, and told me that this would ultimately test that uh, really be able to pinpoint all those markers of the particular cancer that I had. And it's absolutely what the doctor just spoke about. It, it is the most common breast cancer for women. In fact, she didn't mention, and one of the um, things I recently read is that, and this she may have better information on this, but every woman who reaches, the, or one out of every eight women no, sorry, let me back up. Eight out of every 10 women who reach the age of 80 will have breast cancer in one way, shape, or form. So this article that I read said, you know, find it early, find it quick, and you can take care of it quickly. And this this invasive ductal breast cancer that's ER estrogen positive, as the doctor spoke about, is very treatable, especially in the early stages. If I had waited another year, I would have been probably into mid to late stage two. They got it uh, just at the very top of stage one, and that made a huge difference in my in my uh, care. So to, to back up quickly and answer your question about genomic, my doctor recommended the Oncotype DX, which is uh, Dr. Ruth said is um, something where they just take a sample of the tumor when they do the lumpectomy or if they do something more invasive than a lumpectomy, but that was my case. And they sent it down to um, Genomic Health, and within seven business days, I knew exactly what my reoccurrence score was. And the assay itself, which the doctor didn't mention, it, it is a recurrence score from zero or one to a hundred, and it basically tells you what the chances are of your getting a reoccurrence with this type of cancer. My cancer reoccurrence score was nine, which is incredibly low and totally took the weight of the world off me. It, it there was no question that chemotherapy, which the other medical facility that I was going to was just going to add that on, as the doctor said, it was the one-size-fits-all. With the information from genomic, uh, my doctor was able to really have a tailored therapy, a very customized treatment plan for me, um, which should be similar but not identical for every single woman out there. So, so tell me, and we've got um, about about ten minutes, and I really want to get a lot in about your story. So, so tell me and, and our listeners, as a patient, you know, so you have now gone from n- not thinking you're going to have cancer to I have cancer to we've got a way to really test, you know, to see what type of treatment, you know. So you go from you know here are all the treatments that you can have to wait a minute, let's stop and test. How do you as a patient sort of process that in in such a short period of time? (laughs) Well, yeah, because you don't raise your hand and sign up for these things, right? Right. Um, 
So what happened with me, and I have talked with many other women now since this because I, I am a patient advocate for genomic, and I do have um, the, the honor to speak with other women and speak with people in the field. But what happened with me was um, because I went from a very good medical facility to a teaching hospital, I put myself in a situation where I was around doctors um, who were very interested and involved in a lot of clinical trials. So I wanted to know all about that. And in fact, even though I do have a really busy career, I did go into the library. It's the University of California Medical Center. And Mm -hmm. I did pull some abstracts on some papers to kind of read about the type of cancer I had and what were cutting edge at the time, cutting edge um, therapies. So I, um, I kind of kept myself a little busy with doing some research. Now, luckily, I was able to get into surgery pretty quickly. So by the time I had my first appointment at uh, UCSF, and they did the tests again, they wanted to do their own tests, so they did them again, I was in surgery within a week. So I didn't have a lot of time to mull it over. I also was randomized for an interoperative radiation therapy, which I I suggest all women talk to their doctors about because, again, the the turnkey or the one-size-fits-all for um, breast cancer at least eight years ago was that you would have the surgery, then you would have six weeks of radiation, which is measured in grays, and, and it was something like 64 grays of radiation, and that didn't matter if you were five foot three or six foot three or weighed 90 pounds or 180 pounds. Everybody got the same thing. And we don't, you know, have to digress on the side effects of radiation. So I went into my surgery. I had, I was randomized. So luckily I was able to be in a clinical study out of the UK where they did the interoperative radiation therapy. So I only had 20 grades of radiation because that's all I needed. And, um, that whole thing, my lumpectomy, the radiation, the whole thing was done in, I don't remember exactly now, three or four hours. I spent one night in the hospital. Uh, I rested the rest of the week, which was about three or four days, and then I was back at work feeling absolutely fine. But your question about how long then, I had another week or so, I didn't know, and the doctor mentioned it could take from, you know, one to two weeks to get the results from the Oncotype DX. But at that point, I had trusted my doctor so much, I was so... um educated around what I was going to learn from the Oncotype DX. And what I did know, the worst case was that I would have a high recurrent score and that they would recommend chemotherapy. The best case was I would have a low reoccurrence score and they would put me on uh, one of the Arimacin or Arimidex or what uh, some women will recognize as tamoxifen, which is an estrogen blocker, which is just double insurance that you are keeping that bad estrogen um, out of your body, the estrogen that would that caused that type of breast cancer. So, um, you know, I would say that I had some level of concern, but I wasn't going through any anxiety because I knew it would take that amount of time to get the results. I knew what the results would be able to tell me, which 
good or bad, would help me make a very informed decision. And, uh, and you know, I, I just... Um, I just held good thoughts knowing that I would get my answer. And then even if I'd had to have chemotherapy, one of the things that the doctor mentioned, um, my doctor and also um, our doctor on the call today, is around the tailored therapy. So what Mm -hmm. genomic does, it not only can give you a reoccurrence score, but it can actually help doctors create the customized therapy that you would need, like what drugs more than other drugs would work necessarily better for this patient versus another patient. So it's very targeted, very customized um, treatment plan. Yeah, and I, and I think the important part about that is, so there there are a number of different tests depending on on what, what type of cancer that you have. And so if, if you're a patient, so, and I'm going to ask you, you know, sort of your thoughts around this. But if you're a patient, whether you have, you know, we heard her speak about melanoma or lung cancer or breast cancer, that you've gone through the surgery or you've gone through the biopsy, there's that period of time when your tumor is being tested so that they could better understand what is it about that cancer and how should we treat it, to your point, in a very specific way. Um, But yet you are that patient that sort of just learned you have cancer as someone who has gone through that period of time, that waiting, what would you say to patients that they can really do to help to help cope or educate? What 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 happens in that period of time, and and how can you best, as someone who just learned you have cancer, deal with it? You know, deal with with that time and that waiting. Yeah. So that's that's a um, a question that I would say really is such a personal thing for for any woman or man who's going through this. You know, for me, I had a very busy job. Now, mm-hmm. if I wasn't working at all, if I was just like having lunch with my friends or even doing volunteer work, if I wasn't so engaged, I might have been more preoccupied to think about it. Um, I also had a situation in my life where um, I um, lost my husband at a very young age to cancer. And so I had had some experience with um, no, go, my personal experience with going through having to make decisions and knowing what kinds of decisions uh, are how much information you can get to help you make the right decision. So that prompted me to do a little more research on best case, worst case scenario. So, you know, I mean, sometimes for some women or men, you just want to run away from it and take a vacation and try to forget it until you get the answer. For other people, you might want to get involved and say, all right, well, what are the scenarios? So because my... um, my husband had passed away so young and I had a young child. I made the decision not to tell my daughter about this until I exactly knew what the situation was. So she didn't even know about it until a very short period of time before I went in to, to have the surgery because I wanted to be able to explain to her all the great things that the medical world was doing and how um, we would be getting all this information to make very educated decisions. And so I was just 
thinking, okay, so if I have to have chemotherapy, how would I work this out with my schedule? Um, would I even choose to have it or would I, would I make the decision not to have it? So I guess in a way I sort of soul searched myself to say, well, this is another challenge that I've been presented with in my life. So how am I going to handle it that works best for me? I mean, there are great support groups um, at UCSF and at every medical facility around where if women feel like they want to reach out to um, caseworkers or to women who have gone through this, and in fact, women have reached out to me post my diagnosis to ask me what things I did. So the you can have your friends help you, your family help you. Sometimes friends and family are too close. They get, they get kind of so nervous for you and they, and they don't want you to, you know, die or, or be incapacitated. And sometimes it's better to reach out to, um, a counselor, a social worker, um, patient advocacy program that most of these hospitals have. So it's a very personal, um, very personal journey, especially at that time while you're waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which can be which can be difficult. And you know, I'll 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 take the chance to sort of piggyback onto some specifics and, and encourage folks to visit our website at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, where we do have a host of information about genetic testing, genomic testing, the different types of cancer. And if you happen to live in an area where you don't have um, easy access to a center that would offer support services, we have our, our network. We would love to, to, to have anyone visit our network and then also our telephone helpline. And that number, just to remind everyone, is one 793 And that is staffed by licensed mental health professionals. We stand ready to help you at, at, at any point in time. So, Jan, we are at the end of our time together. And I just, before we ended today, wanted to see if there was anything else that you wanted to make sure that our listeners were uh, aware of as a part of this conversation today. Well, the only quick follow-up that I would make is, as scary as a diagnosis is, don't don't put it off. Listen to your body. If you've got something that doesn't seem to quite, you know, feel right or whatever, and you don't have to be in major pain, you know, go check it out. The worst case is, you know, everything will, I mean, not the worst case, best case is everything's fine and you walk away. Worst case is you have a diagnosis, but the sooner it's treated, the sooner you're going to get back to living your normal life. And not to be cavalier at all, but I would tell you, with the exception of when genomic or someone calls me and asks me to speak about my cancer, I don't even think about it anymore. It's just something that happened eight years ago. I took care of it, and my life has continued. And I'd like every woman to have that that sense of, of freedom uh, and that sense of really peace of mind. Thank you. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of force you to add one more thing. (laughs) And that is to remind us of your mantra or your personal credo. Oh, yeah. Well, my mantra is be your own advocate. And I must say that I did learn that early on when my late husband was going through his cancer. I was so young and so confused, but I had great help from people who helped me learn to ask questions. So never knowing that later in life, that would even be my mantra, is, you know, be your own advocate. Ask the questions. And if you feel uh, like you don't have the strength to ask the questions or you don't know what questions to ask, which of course happened to me in both cases, your doctors can 
it can help you. Uh, there's referrals like the type of service you you have. There's so many wonderful um, people and organizations that are willing to help you. So just take that first step, and then people will start connecting you and and be your own advocate. I mean, doctors are wonderful, but don't necessarily. If you think something's wrong and they go, oh, yeah, you're fine, walk away. I mean, if I had done that, I might have been in a much different situation when it came to my own treatment and recovery. Yeah. And the partnership between the healthcare team and the patient and the patient's family is, uh, is, is invaluable. So thank you for reminding us of that. Thank you very much for joining us today. This is um, an incredible topic and I think a very, very helpful show. So thank you. I do want to remind our listeners of a couple of resources. Again, we talked uh, in addition to this, frankly speaking, about Cancer Radio Show. We have a full series of print materials, educational materials on our website. I also want to remind our listeners, whether you are a patient or whether you are a caregiver, we have a very unique resource for you, and that is called the Cancer Experience Registry. So if you haven't had a chance to visit, the, and it's www.cancerexperienceregistry.org, we've got a place for patients, and we also have a place for caregivers to help us understand what that cancer journey is like so that we can then create resources that can be tailored to to you. And also, it's an, an area where you can find resources. So please go visit cancerexperienceregistry.org. Jan, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. I am your guest host, Linda House, president of the Cancer Support Community. Kim Tebeldo will be back with you next week. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, visit www.cancerexperienceregistry.org cancersupportcommunity.org. There you can find a location near you. You're welcome to call our helpline, which is 1-800-793-9355 and speak with a licensed mental health professional Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. As a reminder, all of our services are free. We would love for you to visit cancerexperienceregistry.org. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.